Toronto FC, a team with a new direction after an off-season makeover. It's an all-Canadian affair. Matt working against Morgan. Puts it across the line. Yes! Marco DeVille! That's what we expected from him! To make those rainbows in my mind when I think of you sometime and I wanna spend all time with you just the two of us. Welcome to the weekly Two Solitudes podcast, not to be mistaken with many of our special editions, of which we will have uh, perhaps a couple this week. We're still working the details out of those, uh, where we will break down the Whitecaps season as it as it played out in its entirety, like we did with the Impact and TFC last week, and we'll do an NASL show as well, just got to schedule those yet. Uh, but today, this is our regular show where we're going to look at the MLS playoffs, uh, the non-Canadian MLS playoffs, playoffs, you're talking about playoffs, yeah. Uh, we're going to look at the Laba situation in Toronto and Vancouver, uh, NASL to Toronto, perhaps. That's something I've been talking about. The Ferrari, uh, what are we calling it, Kevin? Uh, it's a pressy, like a selfie. It's a, a self-pressy, yeah, pressy, a self-pressy, uh, a venting, you could say. Yeah, something like that. We're going to try and make a name up there. Maybe we'll hashtag that. And uh, in our middle uh, block today, Kevin and I are going to do our... Canadian MVPs, breakouts, and disappointments for each of the three MLS teams in, in Canada. So we're going to do our own awards, I guess. And then maybe we'll have a discussion at the end, and we'll figure out who should get the overall Canadian MLS MVP, overall Canadian MLS breakout, and overall Canadian most disappointing player of the year award. And that's in our middle block. Uh, Kevin, quickly, before we uh, take the quick break and get on to this, uh, how are things today? Things are pretty good i've been watching the playoffs and one thing i'm really surprised we did a preview show last weekend whenever i do a preview show usually the exact opposite happens but now it's quite the opposite we actually predicted some of the right results yeah we're looking pretty good with our red bulls picks we both picked the red bulls to go a little i i picked them to go quite deep uh you picked them to go not quite as deep but still uh both of us look pretty good there uh, I thought Columbus might win in Columbus, and that didn't really work out. But uh, but no, it, all, all things considered, as predictions go, it, it has been one of my better ones for sure. Yeah, I remember last year predicted the Montreal would win the 2013 MLS Cup. So that's just give you an idea of my usual prediction. So this season, actually these playoffs, I'm actually uh, surprised. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Uh, let's take a quick break, Kevin. Uh, we'll come back, and we're going to break down uh, the Ferrari selfie. No, Suppressi? Suppressi. I like Suppressi. Uh, and uh, the Laba stuff and then ASL to Toronto. And welcome back. And, Kevin, you had an interesting experience this week, uh, correct? Yes, Saturday morning or afternoon at the Ritz-Carlton, there was a press conference by Matteo Ferrari himself. 24 hours before that, he announced he was going to do a press conference because he did not like the way that it ended with the club. He wanted to say his piece. The club scrambled and tried to get that press conference at Statsaputo to have control of that press conference. 
he would not hear anybody did his own, which was actually surreal to see one player do his own press conference at the nicest hotel. I wanted the nicest hotel in town. Yeah, uh, odd. And as I said at the time, I can only imagine what the reaction would be here in Toronto if a TFC player did that. You know, and in the rest of MLS, because they at TFC's viewed as doing everything insane. But this is pretty crazy too that a player would be so frustrated. I guess with so the team. bold. You, 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 like I was saying uh, off air to you, Dwayne, I still don't know where I stand with that press conference. In a way, I understand the guy did not like the way that it ends, and he wanted to uh, to say his piece to the supporters because the supporters always supported him. I can understand that, but on the other hand. He asked a club three months ago, according to him, that he wanted to be traded because he wasn't motivated to play with the team that's last in the standing. Dude, if you're not motivated to play for any team at 35 years old, no matter what the circumstances, maybe you shouldn't even be playing, first of all. Second of all, if you are so selfish that you think about yourself and think about to do your own press conference before the clubs, maybe there's a reason they let you go as well. Well, exactly. Look, I think I'm an outsider on this, and I had no emotional attachment to to Ferrari. In fact, I was calling him Pinto most of the season when I was watching him, and I don't think I was alone watching this. I think that he clearly was done. I think he clearly was one of the problems with the impact this year when you're talking about on the press. I mean, that said, every player deserves to have a little bit of dignity at the end. This probably is the end for him. Um, There's a rumor that he's going to be maybe in another club in Major League Soccer. Who knows? I, I hope it's a club that TFC plays regularly. Um, <laughs> is that a mean thing to say? I don't know. Yeah, I heard anyway, New York. But... The, the one thing that I will say is that, you know, when you're talking about some of that meat of that, and a lot of people jumped onto the idea that, you know, the pro-rel fans out there are going to love that comment because he basically said that it was very difficult for him to motivate himself without relegation to fight against. And, that is something that gets talked about a lot in circles among certain people, and we've touched on it on this. It's a topic that I'm hesitant to get into because, um, you know, I, I made a tweet the other day. We were talking about playoffs in MLS and, and how people like to debate whether we should just end the season at the end of the regular season and give the champion, like Seattle would be the champions now because they won the Supporters' Shield. And what I, the way I framed it is those debates are, are as useful as debating whether we should paint the moon pink. And what I mean by that is that it's absurd to think we're going to paint the moon pink, and it's absurd to think that anyone in MLS is seriously going to consider getting rid of the playoffs. You could extend that to pro-rel. It's absurd to think that we're ever going to have pro-rel here. So in some ways, like when you got to look at Ferrari and go, that's nice, and I understand that on some football fan level, but you know, you knew what you signed up for, right? And where would you get that amount of pink paint anyways to paint that size of a, mo- of a moon? Yeah, that's impossible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we saw that rocket blow up, and thankfully no one's hurting that. But you wouldn't have yeah. had a lot of pink paint. There would have been paint, paint everywhere, and it just doesn't seem like a pragmatic thing to do. Oh, anyhow. Um, but going back to Ferrari, I totally understand your point. That was I was really conflicted because, in a way, the guy is right. He's honest. And he, the club, to, he wanted to be traded. The club said, no, you're too important. We need to keep you. First of all, they should have traded him because... He wasn't that important. We all saw the result of that. But that aside, the club said no. And then you let him go for nothing after one day of the season over. And the club told him, well, that's about it. It's over. We don't want you anymore. And he was left without nothing. He was left without the final words. 
And I think that's what that press conference was. And look, you can frame this within, if you want to get this into a serious conversation we could have, you could frame those kind of player control issues uh, right with the CBA negotiations that are coming up here. And there's a lot of players that come from outside of North America that push back against these ideas, that push, like with Camillo, we saw it there, that refused to acknowledge this something that's absolutely absurd to them, that they would have no control over whether they can have their contract extended. Um, within the MLS CBA, which was negotiated and therefore is legally binding and all those sort of things, uh, the, the clubs have the right. They can just simply say, yeah, we're going to continue your contract for another year. And a guy like Camillo is left going, well, I was the golden boot winner. I deserve more money. And their clubs are like, we don't care. You know, like they have that power. Uh, Ferrari be a guy like, well, I want to move on. I don't want a player anymore. Why do you, you know, would you just release me? Why should I not have some control? Because that's the environment they've been brought up in. And if MLS wants to seriously compete on the global market, wants to seriously be, quote unquote, one of the best leagues in the world by 2022, we need a bumper for that. Oh, um, anyway, maybe that. Uh, the doo, doo, doo. <laughs> da, 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 yeah, that one might be the right one. But at any rate, uh, if they seriously want to do those things and be part of that global marketplace, then they're going to need to start seriously thinking about tweaking some of their rules like this, which give the players a little more power. Now, you know, it's not quite an exact thing with Ferrari here. He's kind of being a bit of a prima donna, but at the same time, you can understand when you put it in that overall framework that that it might fit a bit. Uh, And it's, he used the media, let's be fair. He used the media for his own agenda last week and it's fine. You're at some sport level. We see that more often than not. And, we're just not used to see it in Major League Soccer. And again, it was quite odd to see a press conference with no club representative whatsoever. It was uh, He felt liberated, and we all felt a little awkward. Yeah, well, I personally would love to see, uh, with all due respect to the lovely PR professionals that work within MLS Soccer that sometimes return my emails, um, I would love to see some press conferences without them hovering. So... Maybe uh, maybe Ferrari can uh, start a trend there. What do you think? Uh, the blueprint has been made. There you go. All right. We'll, uh, we'll follow Ferrari's situation if he signs with another club. Uh, otherwise, we'll say goodbye to our, our dear friend, Mr. Pinto, and uh, move on to our next topic, which is not a Pinto. Uh, it is uh, Matias Laba. Matias Laba is, has become a key component of the Vancouver Whitecaps. Of course, he was a member of Toronto FC at this time last year. A uh, designated player, a young designated player for Toronto FC. Unfortunately, when they signed Gilberto and then uh, Jermaine Defoe and then Michael Bradley, uh, the MLS rules prevent more than three DPs, and they had to get rid of one. Um, we can put aside the fact that I think it's absurd that MLS limits the amount you want to pay on players because I'm not a socialist when it comes to my football. But putting that aside, uh, it forced Toronto to make a trade. They didn't really have a lot of power. The trade they worked out was kind of a weird-ass trade kind of loan situation with Vancouver that no one knows anything about other than the Whitecaps are saying that there is a, a fee, to use their terms, which are attached to them, him staying there. Uh, Toronto's not disputing that. Uh, however, if you look at some of the reporting at the time of it, Toronto is saying that that, that fee, quote-unquote, and I keep using quote-unquote for reasons I'll explain in a minute, is going to be pretty significant. Um, let's start with a basic fact, Kevin. Right. Matias Lava is a Vancouver Whitecap. Yep. He's not going to come back to Toronto unless the Whitecaps choose to send him back to Toronto. And I think that that's the first thing that both, you know the Whitecaps can thankfully breathe a sigh of relief on. 
and that fans, I'm saying, and that uh, TFC fans can get over because he's gone. Uh, however, there is a legitimate conversation to have about about this fee. Um, first off, Kevin, when teams use, when it was Carl Robinson used the term fee when he was describing this to the media, and, and there are certain people here in Toronto that have taken that to mean that there's basically going to be an envelope passed between TFC and the Whitecaps, and, you know, MLSE is going to be, you know, in their boardroom making it rain with their new cash and buying high-end sushi or something with it. Now, I don't think it's going to be real money, Dwayne. I think it's going to be uh, probably a nod to our friend Al again. Yeah, allocation, uh, the, the famed uh, Irish defender that gets traded a lot in MLS uh, will be part of this. Guys, it's a semantic thing in a lot of ways, but you've got to understand that MLS' single entity setup does not allow teams to simply pay each other for players. It's purposely set up to prevent that kind of uh, bidding war. They don't want to drive. They don't want to inflate the cost of transfers up. So internal transfers in MLS are, are covered by what's called allocation. But what you got to understand about allocation, think about what the word means. It's allocate. They're allocating transfer funds to each team equally. And then they give some a little bit more based on certain criterias. And then the teams in MLS are free to use that allocated money, that allocation money, in any way they see fit. It's a fee. It's a transfer fee. You just That's how you wrap your head around what allocation is. It's just money. It's just a pool of money that teams have access to that is controlled ultimately centrally by Major League Soccer, that single entity. So when Carl Robinson uh, colloquially says the term fee or transfer, that's just his European brain wrapping his head around what allocation is. So don't get caught up in thinking there's something weird going on. What's going to happen is Toronto's going to get allocation money. They're going to get allocated money that they then can spend on new players whether or on uh, salary relief, which is the other way you can spend allocation in MLS. That's all it is. Yeah, and I wouldn't... I would be surprised if... Would it be enough to get a player of note, or would it... We see the effect of that lab uh, allocation money to Toronto, or it's just going to be drowned out in their off-season transfer? Well, the problem with allocation from a fan perspective is that it's so... First off, is, is that MLS doesn't release how much they spend. True. Uh, they don't want... There's a couple reasons they don't want that. On an international level, they don't want... Uh, agents to know how much money MLS is working with. That's a negotiation thing. Okay. They don't want that information publicly out there. Uh, and since they're a public or private company, they can hide it as much as they want. They also internally, each of the teams operating within their franchise system doesn't want it knowing how much allocation they have. They don't want other teams in MLS how much money they have to spend. Again, for competitive reasons, that's the argument they use. So, but from a fan perspective, that really kind of makes it hard for people to wrap their head around what allocation is, uh, because it's just it's this vague thing. It's like liquid. We don't quite know. Like we don't know how much they're going to get for Labo. We're just going to get a press release in a couple weeks that basically says that you know Vancouver and Toronto have come to an agreement based on what the final payment will be, the future considerations of the Matias Lava trade, and. And everyone here in Toronto is going to go, well, what the hell does that mean? And we're not going to know. <laughs> and the club will say stuff like, well, it's, it's significant. And that's what they said back when the trade was made. And it probably will be significant. But there's just a lot of mistrust amongst management here in Toronto. So people will assume that 
significant means nothing and they're talking at their ass. But we won't know because we never – the other part of that is we don't ever see – no one ever in MLS says, well, this is – we bought this player using Matias Lava's allocation. It won't be that simple. We'll have to, like, interpret and assume and figure things out based on our own um, interpretation of what's happening. But my understanding is it will be – it will be enough money that if they spend it wisely, which is, you know, insert your own joke here. <laughs> if they spend it wisely, they should be able to get a player of Lava's quality with the money they get for Lava. However, it's TFC, so who knows? <laughs> All right. Another news that you've been talking about the last couple of days, Duena, there might be rumblings of a new team, who knows, in the GTA area. Yeah, and this is something that, to be clear, I, I tweeted it out yesterday because I got some solid information on the weekend that I followed up on yesterday, and I seem to have, there's a bit of scent to the trail. Uh, so I felt comfortable putting it out there in, in a more formal way, although I've, no, I've not shied away from, from the, this rumor in the past either. Uh, there is a group, a investment group here in the city of Toronto that has been together for some time now and has the cash in hand ready to spend on bringing an NASL team to somewhere in the GTA. Um, this group, and this is what I learned yesterday, is who they were. And I'm not prepared to say outright who they are yet because I'm trying to get a hold of someone uh, within this organization to give them the opportunity to comment before I release it. I will eventually. What I can say is that the group is a significant investment firm or sorry, investment firm, pardon me, that implies they're bankers. They're, they significantly are, it's a real estate investment group and you can draw your own conclusions based on that. And uh, they're pretty, they have a very high profile in the city. Uh, if you read between my lines and start Googling around, you could probably figure out a couple candidates. Uh, the point being, and the only point that really matters, it doesn't really matter who exactly it is, but it matters except for this, the money's there. This is a very wealthy group that has more than enough money to buy an NASL team. So the the delay has always been on the NASL's level. They're reluctant to go into the GTA because they fear about the 17-headed monster that is MLSE and what kind of pushback they get from MLSE, the marketing muscle behind MLSE. They feel that even though there is a significant amount of people in the city of Toronto that are sick of MLSE, most people aren't that tuned in. And that they could just get completely overwhelmed, the noise of MLSC to fight back and to push back against an NASL team. An ASL team might make it impossible for them. There are people in the current NASL that feel that. So that's what the delay is. However, what I'm what I'm hearing is that there's it's increasingly becoming more likely that eventually someone will take the risk. Uh, NASL, uh, the NASL president was on Soccer Morning a couple weeks ago. He talked about how he thought there was no reason not to have NASL teams in the same markets as MLS. He also talked that he that they would be expanding their footprint in Toronto, not in Toronto specifically, but in Canada soon is the words he used. So, and we know two possibilities of what that could be. So, who knows? Yeah, and. Look, the other quick thing before we move on and talk in a little more speculative way is uh, this group is not associated with the Hamilton group. So when you're talking about a GTA uh, NASL team, I'm talking about a team that would likely play somewhere in the city of Toronto or in Vaughan or in Markham or in Mississauga and that there would still be an additional group within the city of Hamilton that is looking to bring a team into the Hamilton market, which they would view as their own market. So we're talking about the potential of going from no NASL teams in southern Ontario to perhaps 
you know, two years ago to three in Ontario. If you include Ottawa as part of Southern Ontario, it's more Eastern, but you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, three teams in Ontario within three years. That might be something that happens, uh, although the, the timeline is probably closer to 2017 than, than it's probably closer to 2017 than it is to 16 is what I'm saying. Um, Kevin, I think from that point, and we'll follow this, obviously, and I continue to work to try and get comment from the group so that I can release more specifics about who exactly they are, but I've given you enough clues that you can start looking. Um, in the meantime, let's talk more speculatively. Uh, you know, and we'll talk about all three markets, too, the three MLS markets. Do you think, Kevin, and I'll start with you, in Montreal, would, would an NASL team be able to compete with the Impact, or do the Impact need to get a greater footprint there before you can talk about another team coming in? They definitely need a greater footprint, either in the media or corporate level, and all those levels that are needed in a city to have a successful franchise. The impact are threading thin waters just by themselves, shallow waters, because they've been struggling this season, especially now with the Canadians and all that, with media presence, and that's totally another story, but the impact already by itself are struggling. And now with just the new USL Pro team coming next year, FC Montreal... It's still going to be an, uh, a challenge for them to get people, get butts in those seats. So with an, I don't think an ASL team would be possible in Montreal on top of already those two ex- uh, existing teams. That could be why with the USL team that uh, that they're not planning to charge uh, tickets. Yeah. They, they're probably looking, their, their business model such as it is, is to develop players to sell or to make a little bit of money to break even-ish. Uh, by selling concessions. That's probably what they're thinking is there. Yeah. Um, you know, I, Vancouver, I've talked to some people out there, and I think that when I read the market, and, and I'm an outsider, and I don't pretend to be otherwise when we're talking about Vancouver, but from what I've read out of it, I do think that there's some similarities to the Toronto market in the sense that there are is a significant minority, and I do stress minority, that are kind of sick and tired of MLS, and some of the rules and the single entity stuff that we just touched on a minute ago and all that sort of stuff that might be willing to go with an NESL team that they would view uh, as having more autonomy uh, and more be in line with what they, they feel a football club should look like. We see that in the U.S. too with the split between the traffic fans and the some fans, right? Like there, there's a lot of them. We don't need to... We don't need to talk about who who those fans are because we all know who the one is anyway. <laughs> the more sane ones of those those folks, um, they, um, they you know that's why they just feel they feel more comfortable supporting the NASL model. And there are a lot of people that don't feel comfortable with traffic, and that's a whole topic that we're going to put aside for right now. But there there is that divide. I think we can agree with that. And I think Vancouver. And I think Vancouver might be more likely to support an NASL team as well than Montreal because I agree that Montreal is a market right now. It's kind of a fickle market. Is that a fair way to put it in the oh, sense that it likes to support winners? Yeah, yeah they, the Habs. Like, they don't sell out Habs games when the Habs aren't doing well. Uh, that's not true, though. It's been sold out for 25 years. Okay. There's seats missing. How's that? They sell it, like, they sell it the same way Toronto sells out the DFC games. <laughs> exactly. Okay. There you go. We can agree with agree there. Um, let's take it back to Toronto and then where I have more of an expertise on. Uh, I have always, people ask me this question all the time, like, would an NASL team work here? And, and there is divided opinion. There are people that, that believe very strongly that an NASL team would crash and burn here, that they're just, just not interested in quote-unquote minor league soccer. The NASL would disagree with that, that interpretation of what they are, but that's how the perception is reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um. I think that there is a significant minority, again, of maybe one to 2,000 
fans that currently go to TFC that are pretty involved TFC fans that are just ready to completely walk away from everything TFC related. And the only thing that keeps them in the building is that they need their weekly soccer fix. And if there wasn't a choice, there was an alternative. And I think even Hamilton would offer them that alternative. But if there was definitely a local alternative that they would be willing to walk away. I think there's also a group of maybe one to 2000 fans in this city that are just huge soccer fans that would probably in some way support both teams. That gives us a number of, you know, on the low end, 2,000, on the high end, 4,000 fans that they could start start with as a, as a pretty solid base and work up from there by, like, you know, doing the same kind of initiatives that any team at that level did. I'm not suggest- more, Maybe more grassroots and family-oriented like DNSL usually do. And who knows? That worked in Montreal in the early 2000s. It could probably work in Toronto. Yeah, I, I think that it would be a, a, a better chance. Like, people always look at the links – uh, issue, but the links had terrible ownership too. Uh, they just had terrible ownership with that did also didn't have money <laughs> in any significant way. So it was like MLC without. Um, if you had a situation where you had a team that had the money backing and had uh, you know a core of a couple thousand more diehard fans, they could then separate and then work the crew, the clubs, and the youth and the families. Uh, I think you could have a, a, a crowd that would look a lot like what a Whitecaps crowd looked like uh, back in their USL days, where you had the Southsiders that were there and then had their little roped-off area where they could have their little fun with a little more flexibility than maybe they've even gotten in an ASL stadium, and then the rest of them could you know sit back and look at the animals in the zoo at the, in the supporter section, and I would stand there, so I'm calling myself an animal too, and the rest of them just have fun with mascots and all that sort of stuff. I think it would be a different aesthetic, but I think it would work is the bottom line that I'm saying. And more to the point, Kevin, and we'll end it with this. I think we're going to find out. I think we're going to find out sooner, sooner rather than later, and I'm, I'm, I'm excited about that because I think if we want to take it on the very last level, as much as we can argue about the business of it, I don't think anyone can argue that it would be good for Canadian soccer. And not just that, uh, for TFC to have competi- competition in the same market can only mean good things because they won't be able to do mistakes after mistakes and just live with them. Well, yeah, that's the same you know same kind of argument that you hear about on the NHL side that people want a second NHL team in the city, um, which would also get support. I don't think there's a debate there, but yeah. uh, and it would be the same type of fans. There, there is an anti MLSE uh, undercurrent of dissatisfaction that that begs to have an outlet, and I could see that as being a rallying point amongst the hardcore fans. We aren't MLSE. We are MLSE free. Win or lose, at least we don't have that million-pound anchor around our, our neck anymore as a Toronto sports franchise. And I think that that uh, is maybe the thing that would most uh, give them a chance to succeed. Anyway, um, we'll uh, you know tweet at us if you disagree. Uh, let us know what you think. I'll continue to follow this story. Hopefully, I'll have some more concrete information that I can provide you in the next couple weeks. But in the meantime, Kevin, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back, and we'll do our MVP breakout and disappointment awards for each of the three Canadian MLS teams after this quick break. Thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Sucker Podcast with Kevin Laramie and Dwayne Rollins. You can reach the guys on Twitter at 24th Minute and at Kevin Laramie. Or both of them at Two Solitudes Pod. Reach the guys on email. Two Solitudes Podcast at gmail.com. But especially subscribe on Stitcher Radio. Now back to the show. And welcome back. And in this segment, we're going to go through... Kevin and I have created three awards. 
that we're going to award, uh, award in quotes. <laughs> There's no solid trophy that's going to these guys, to be clear. Especially no checks coming into yeah, Meltdown. Yeah, there are no checks. Uh, anyway, the awards are uh, the biggest disappointment, the biggest breakout, and the most valuable player for each of the three teams. And the way we're going to do this is we're going to start with the uh, the bad end, and we're going we're gonna to give our picks for disappointment, and I picked the Toronto players. Kevin picked the Montreal players. We worked together to pick the, the Vancouver players. Uh, we're just going to go through it like that, and then we'll do the breakout, and then we'll do the MVP. So, Kevin, without any further ado, uh, let's talk about disappointments. And let's start with Toronto, because they kind of win the award for most disappointment overall. Well, they had a lot of good, uh, challenges for that award this season, I have to say. <laughs> yeah, and this is how you come down to interpret it. This isn't the worst player or the crappiest player or whatever. I mean, that's a different kind of conversation, and I don't want to go that negative. But when you you put expectation with ultimate result together, that to me is what most disappointed player is. And when it came down to that, as much as it kills me to do it, there's only one name that kept coming back to me. My biggest disappointment in Toronto FC 2014 is there was a boy from Scarborough and Dero was his name-o. <laughs> Dwayne Rosario. Well, I have to agree with you because at the beginning of the season I even remember the Toronto crowd and the journalists and the talking heads were saying that D. Rowe was going to have a stint with Toronto that's going to become memories it's going to become the one stint for Toronto that he achieved something we all remember the prior stint with Toronto did not end well and it was his redeeming point well it did not happen that way yeah and look I think that we're in fairness to people here in Toronto there was Always a, a caveat to any conversations about uh, Di Rosario in the off season that everyone understood that he didn't look very good for uh, for DC United at the end of last year. Everyone understood the past problems that were here, uh, but from talking to people, they they felt that he was going to be a good team player. Um, I know there are, is a very small and and consistent and stubborn minority out there that still believes that he's a disruption there's no evidence to suggest that's correct however i hear you i know you're out there so we'll leave it at that in terms of the public persona he wasn't a dressing room distraction but he also in terms of what actually happened on the pitch was a non-factor this year he scored two goals um one was a fairly big goal in context it was the goal that got them the points back in chicago uh, before they ultimately would have got all three back and then had that taken from them um, the only other goal he scored this year was in a friendly during the World Cup break in Wilmington and the USL, which, you know, if he wants to play next year, might be where he's playing. So it's it's kind of um, kind of a sad end. It was a, you know, we have like a guy like Landon Devon, Donovan stepping aside, who was a legend uh, in MLS, obviously a legend, L&D. <laughs> but D-Row, you know, the reason I'm bringing him up is because those two players actually had similar careers and D-Row's a little bit older, um, but... He, he is every bit as legend within the concept of, of Major League Soccer as landed in a lot of ways. Uh, he doesn't get as much attention because he doesn't have, he's not a U.S. national team player. He was there probably a little before the attention was brought on Major League Soccer too, right? He was yeah. there in the early beginnings. Yeah, he, he probably peaked. Uh, well, he had his MVP season. He had a renaissance with, uh, with D.C. United. But before that, I think he was, in all, he was great in his Houston years. Uh, he's a great player within the context of MLS. And anyone, even if you hate D-Row, if you objectively step back and look at Major League Soccer, if ML, if Major League Soccer had a Hall of Fame that was only Major League Soccer, he would be a first ballot Hall of Famer. 
And it's kind of sad that a guy like that's probably going to have his career kind of twerkle out, although he is talking about he wants to come back. I just don't know how TFC could justify that. And there just there was this opportunity for redemption based on how he left before. And not because of he did crappy things off the field like the last time, but his just he was done and he is done and, and that's disappointing. And I think it's time to um to give him that club ambassador role that he's been promised to put his number up on the wall of fame, which is going to be a very interesting time in the stadium with the silent minority uh, making a lot of noise, the unsilent minority, um, and uh, move on from his time in the playing career. So that that is my biggest disappointment for TFC. Um, let's move to uh, your pick for biggest disappointment for the Montreal Impact, Kevin. The entire 2014 season. No, no, no. It's not true. My disappointment this season, I'll bring you back to uh, the offseason last year in January. When uh, Nick DeSantis, the then technical director, or just let's just say the guy responsible for player personnel, because all those names and titles don't really mean anything in Major League Soccer. Well, the guy who was doing the trades and the signing, Nick DeSantis, re-signed a player that played a couple minutes in 2013. Now, sir, saying that, oh, Wizard Jury Pass, which was it for the last six years before that. His injury pass is over and we re-signed him. After two minutes of play, same thing happened in 2014. We haven't seen him since. And I did a show called A Gambler's Move on that signing. thought it was a really good gambler's move. I thought it was going to be the move that cost him his job. Well, in hindsight, it might have been. But I'm still disappointed. People might have forgotten about it. But remember this. Nick DeSantis signed Nelson Rivas in 2014 in January. And it was a, a disappointing signing that led to a disappointing season. It, well, has NDS lost his job? There's the question. It's hey, the, hey, that's why I said the titles don't mean anything. Yeah, that's the <laughs> question of question of the day in the offseason for the Impact, I think. Um, the only thing I'll say to that, uh, look, the Impact had a terrible year. <laughs> yes, they had. And there could have been a lot of people you put in there. But I think that, that sign is probably symbolic of all of the mistakes that they made in the offseason. Like the Issei and the Kojima Ferran trade and all those put together. It brings to the same type of scenario with Nelson Rivas, I agree. Which begs the question, we didn't extend this to uh, non-players, but if we did extend it to non-players, uh, would NDS not be the disappointment of the season? The entire league, probably, yes. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, together, we came up with the uh, the following for the Vancouver Whitecaps. And uh, this is a guy, it's more of a, a career, you know, a career achievement award as much as it is for this year. But the uh, first ever uh, drop pick of the uh, Vancouver Whitecaps, the uh, biggest uh, first round bust in a long time. <laughs> Omar Salgado, he is our biggest disappointment for the Whitecaps. He's just a guy that had a hissy fit off the field that didn't contribute on the field. That's never really been anything for the Whitecaps and a guy that I think everyone in Vancouver understands is done in Vancouver. Him and Maddox are going to be showing the first boat out of out of the port and <laughs> off to wherever. And look, he's a guy that has some raw talent. It um, wouldn't shock me to see him land somewhere in like the Mexican League or even Central America somewhere and, and revive his career. He's still young. He's born in 93. Uh, oh, but wow. his time in Vancouver is – there's just no other way to describe it than a complete – mess it was a disaster there's no other way to describe it especially for a guy picked first overall yeah there's nothing else i can say and we've seen lately in the last couple of years especially for the canadian team that had the first draft pick so montreal toronto was a long time ago but montreal and vancouver they did not use those big carefully and those players are long gone now 
Yeah, well, Toronto picked a good player with their first pick. Well, they had, they traded their first. The last, they've had the first overall pick twice, which is telling. But <laughs> <laughs> only twice. Yeah, well, they've only finished last, completely last uh, twice. But anyway, uh, once actually. Uh, well, no, it was twice because because they did in their first season too, but draft, they yeah. they didn't have first pick because of expansion coming in. So uh, they traded it away the second time they had it, but their first ever time they had it was Moadu, uh, which wasn't a bad pick on the surface, but they he went away a year later. So really, the Toronto FC's original draft pick is the grass at BMO Field because that's what they used the money they got from the Moadu signing. Anyhow, but that's um, something to be to be fair to the Montreal and Vancouver who and Toronto. The first pick in the Super Draft in the history of Major League Soccer is usually three, four years after that, they're long gone. It's really rare you'll get somebody that's going to be uh, have an impact on the league. So. Yeah, top five picks, you can get something, but whether they're, it's a catch-22 when you're looking at the most talented player in the draft. Is it like, do you pick the best player and have them there for two years and then sell them? I mean, that's kind of where you're at in a lot of ways. So, and in the drafts, we'll talk about the draft when it gets closer. I do a lot of research on it. We'll get to the numbers, but... Uh, Anyway, Omar Salgado is our biggest disappointment in Vancouver this year. Uh, let's move on to um, breakout, Kevin. And uh, I guess we'll do the same order again. So we'll start with TFC. Uh, my biggest breakout with TFC, and this one I struggled with a little bit, but I ended up going with Nick Haglin. Uh, Nick Haglin is not going to ever be a superstar. I don't think anyone would argue he's not ever going to be a guy that's going to be flashy that's going to score many goals. He had that two-goal game, which is probably he won't score another for three years. But, you know, he's not going to be that kind of guy. But what Nick Hagelin's going to be is an MLS player. And as I've written about, TFC's biggest problem over the years is that they have been too loose with MLS-quality players. They get them and they look at them and they see the flaws rather than what they are, and they dump them over the ship and they go chasing someone better and they end up getting someone worse. So with Nick Haglin, to get him, to develop him into an MLS average player, have a guy that I think is going to play five, six, seven years in MLS, that's a really valuable asset that they have, and they got him out of the first round of the, of the draft. And I think that that, for TFC, is a really good thing and something that deserves to be recognized. So my biggest breakout for TFC this year is Nick Haglin. Uh, Kevin, who was your biggest breakout for the Montreal Impact? Well, in a very hard season, the breakout is a little bit of... It's forced in a way, but it's because of necessity. The impact had a lot of injuries in the defense and really hard season. Like you talked about Ferrer, how it turned a Ferrari into a Pinto. Well, because of that, we saw a lot of academy defenders playing this season. And I have to say, they had a breakout year. If you're talking about Wandry Lefebvre, who has become almost a top of the death chart in centre-backs now that Ferrari's gone with the Montreal impact. Even Ferrari said in the press conference that, you know, Wandril, the keys are yours and you take care of that house now. And who knows what's going to happen when we might have an academy player with a starting 11 next year, which is, uh, you don't see that every day in a Canadian major league soccer team. And for that, the academy deserves to have a, the breakout performance for this season for the Montreal impact. It'll be very interesting to see what they do with the academy kids. Uh, we had uh, Nick Sabati on here, and he's thought that a lot of them are going to end up in the USL next year. Uh, I don't one's think that's... gone already, though. If you're talking about Zakaria Mesudzi, who was loaned to Fury, played a couple minutes, got injured, didn't play a lot with Ottawa. Well, he's been released by Montreal this, this last week as well. Same time as Ferrari. Fair, fair enough, yeah. And that will happen, and that's we've seen that in Toronto over the years. There's a ton of guys that they've signed to the academy that have just gone by the wayside. And I think that the teams, hopefully with those USL, won't have that. They'll sign guys from the academy, 
and give them that pro moment, but that moment where they sign something and get a little bit of attention on the press side, but then they go to the USL and they could either sink or swim. And I think that that's a fair way to sort of that they needed that middle ground. And it'd be very interesting to, to see what happens with the, the impact Academy now that they have the middle ground that is desperately needed. We're both uh, Toronto and Vancouver and they're both working on it in fairness, but we'd like to see some movement there. Uh, there still might be teams in both cities by next year. We just don't know yet. Yeah. At any rate, um, let's move on and talk about our breakout for the the Whitecaps. And um, this one I struggled with a little bit as well, Kevin. But the choice that we ended up coming with was a guy that came very late in the year. Yeah. But I think that mid-season transfers are are tough to get and tough, tough to get right. And I think Vancouver did with this guy. And it's Kendall Watson is our pick. And to me, he made the difference down the stretch when they got tight when their defense like got better and they were able to shut teams down and get themselves into the playoffs, I think it was because of Kendall Watson and was a major factor anyway. Obviously, it's a team concept and blah, blah, blah. You know, I've heard other places talk about like they thought that once Demerit went down that there was just no chance. But this is a guy that, that they brought in that I think uh, so long as he can continue his form that he had down the back half of the season – uh, will be a, a really, really great signing for the Whitecaps, and that's why I, I chose him as, as the my pick for the breakout in, in the Whitecaps. And if it wasn't for him, they would probably not even had the playoff game last Wednesday, so uh, he deserves it because he had not just an impact, but he had an influence on the season they had late in the season. I think result, he, yeah. the impact, wish he was an impact, but... Yeah, yeah of course. Huh? Anybody, for, for now. We needed, like, just a guy who can play, I'll take him. Anytime. Yeah, well, and he came from Saprissa, right? So, and yeah. Costa Rican national, international. That's the type of guys, and people belabor this, but it's true that you've got to find value in MLS, and this is a real value signing to get him from that level of a team to be able to identify that. That speaks to Carl Robinson's uh, networking ability within those clubs. I mean, Vancouver's has turned itself into a Latino club in a lot of ways, and they have a lot of contacts in that world, and this is just another example of it. Uh, so Watson is, is our pick there. So that leads us to our MVPs. And I guess we have to start with Toronto again, and this is a terribly difficult choice when you're talking <laughs> about TFC and you have to pick an MVP for this year. Um, lots of ways I could have went with this, Kevin. I could have could have been you know real contrarian and picked Defoe because uh, he did have a lot of goals. Um, I could have uh, picked someone like uh, like Gilberto Iman in the last half of the year. I could have picked Bendik maybe because they were piled with shots at the end and gone the keeper role, and that's what we Canadians do. We always give MVPs to our goalies for some reason. It is. Look at the hockey. <laughs> anyway. But who I ended up picking, and it's much to do because what's the name? I'm always one that looks at the V or – the, the part of the MVP. It's not most outstanding player, right? It's valuable, yeah. It's most valuable to his team. That I've always interpreted it that way. And my pick has as much to do with what happened to Toronto when he wasn't available as what happened to Toronto when he was. Because I think that demonstrated his value to the team. And that is Stephen Caldwell. Yeah. Uh, Stephen Caldwell, when he when he was there and healthy and playing for TFC, TFC was much more solid. They weren't leaking goals. The younger defenders were able to concentrate on their athletic aspect of the game and, and be contributors rather than anchors. Uh, TFC was in a playoff spot, and to me, they fell out of the playoff spot when he got hurt. So that's why he's TFC's MVP to me. Uh, he also has a lot of leadership stuff there, and it's even though he's advanced in age, I think that's why TFC makes it has to make a concerted effort to bring him back for another year, and uh, surround him with a little bit more so that uh, that he can stay healthy and get subbed out a little bit more and not have to start every game so that he can be there when it matters. Because 
Um, he's maybe the best defender to ever play for TFC, which is not the hardest list to top, but uh, <laughs> certainly uh, he's a, a valuable guy for for the Reds, and he's deserving of that award, in my opinion. Absolutely. For Montreal, my uh, MVP, well, he's been named the team MVP as well, but the only player who had a consistent season with Montreal with decent goals, decent assists, was uh, Andres Romero, who had a rejuvenation between the half season and came in as a new father, but accustomed to his role as a new father and was actually able to perform on the pitch. And he was impressive this season, a technical level that we did not expect from him watching him last year with this play. This year was impressive, and he is one of the signings we made in the last year and a half that stayed with the club and actually got better since he joined the club. So that's something we don't see every day in Montreal, a transfer that continues to grow and flourish as a player, and he's still very young. So he might be a good Major League Soccer player for the next couple of years to come. All right, fair pick there. And uh, it's always hard when you had a tough year. But, uh... Yeah. I mean, Montreal had as much as we. It see in retrospect, it almost seems like Toronto had a worse year than than Toronto than Montreal. But we must, I think, understand that they did not. No, nobody they, in the league had a worse season than the Montreal Impact did. Yes, and, and Toronto had some positives. And anyway, we outlined. Uh, speaking of positives, the only playoff team in this mix, uh, Morales was the guy that got picked by the team. Um, he's the obvious choice. He's kind of the. He's a flashy the, choice because you see him stand out too. Yeah, he's the engine in the midfield there. That, uh, that this is, he's a great player, and when he's on, he's on. But this is a guy that got subbed out in their playoff game, right? He's not the most consistent guy, and that's why we went with a different choice. And TFC fans are going to love this choice. <laughs> the Vancouver Whitecaps 2014 MVP, Matias Laba. Uh, I don't think you argue it. I don't think you can. I think it's an obvious pick to me. Yeah, I think it is. I think you're right. And he's been consistent. He's been solid defensively. He was able to almost use Buse as a sweeper to protect the defense and then generate some offense. Uh, no, Laba's the definite choice for Vancouver. Yeah. Matias Laba is a role player, but he's a very good role player. He's a number six, and there aren't a lot of pure sixes in MLS. Uh, the nature of the league is that you, you can't spend a lot of money in, in positions like that. That's at least in the philosophy for going through years. Um, you know, the uh, the closest player that I would put to Laba in terms of his overall abilities and what he provides to an MLS team is Beckerman. And he's he's the only other one that starred there. But to me, Laba's a younger, better version of Kyle Beckerman. And that's saying a lot in this league because Kyle Beckerman is, is, you know, we talked about that MLS Hall of Fame. First ballot. Yeah, he's one of them, right? So Laba is absolutely, he's never going to be a superstar. He's never going to be the guy that's going to be the flashy MVP pick. But he's going to be the choice of the purists on a lot of teams. And it is a big loss for TFC. He's a worker's choice. Yeah, he, he is a guy that really would have been amazing for TFC this year. But we can't belabor that much more because it's one of those things is that, you know, he's not. And it's a funny choice this because when you compare him to Bradley, which is ultimately where they ended up choosing Bradley over him because they brought Bradley in as the third DP, which they then would have had to know that they would have needed to get rid of Lava. Well, maybe they did because it's TFC. <laughs> um, it, you know, most people would have because he's a little flashier. But Lava is an, is an incredible player that could have a very long career in MLS that could uh, get picked up and, and excel at a high league. Because the thing about a, a, a good number six that has technical skills is that they can play with him. You know, surprising players can excel at high levels if they're surrounded by great talent. 
And uh, he's a guy that I think maybe could move on to a bigger league. I mean, we, you know, Julian de Guzman played in La Liga and was standard in La Liga and sucked in MLS because he didn't have the talent around him to, to fulfill that. I think Lab is a better ver- version of what Julian was, right? So this is a good player, and uh, Vancouver's damn lucky to have him, and they're going to have to pay through the nose for him, but they probably should and probably will. Well, I have to agree with you. So Laba is probably, too, our uh, overall Canadian most valuable player for a Canadian Major League Soccer team. I would nominate Matias Laba, too, do I? Yeah, and that's uh, if we're going to do overall awards, and we might as well because we're here, uh, <laughs> Laba would be my the most valuable player on a Canadian MLS team, which is kind of an elaborate award. Uh, not, it's a mouthful. <laughs> not one that one grows up dreaming of winning, but uh, he, Matias Laba is our Canadian MLS MVP this year. Uh, if you want to extend it to the other two awards, um, we had a long debate off air about, uh, about the breakout. And I ended up, this is my logic. I ended up thinking Hagelin is the breakout because I think the Academy kids may have a higher ceiling, yep. but they're, they need to prove that. Right. Yep. And I think when you're talking about Watson, he's only been here a couple months and, the same thing like you know if it's longer if it was a whole year i think that he probably might be better now and there's a probably about it he is better now yeah. uh but you know he hasn't proven it long enough at mls level but what nick Hagelin is is an mls quality mls replacement level defender that will have a long mls career and that is a valuable thing and uh he came out of nowhere too the 11th pick wasn't uh projected as even a first rounder uh, for TFC to identify him, to develop him a little bit, to have him stand out and jump up and prove himself when no one expected much, I think that really deserves to be recognized as well. And uh, there's no shame in being an MLS replacement level player and having a five, six year professional soccer career. I didn't have a five year professional soccer career. Did you, Kevin? No. No. So, yeah, good for Nick Hagelin. He is our pick, is our breakout pick, which leads us to our most disappointing player. And I, this one was a no brainer to me amongst the three. I mean, D Row was disappointing. Uh, you know, we're talking about a symbolic pick when we're talking about the impact, but Salgado, he's been the most disappointing player in MLS for several years, period. So <laughs> I don't think there's much pick there. That's our pick as our overall Canadian disappointment of the year. Omar Salgado, have fun in the Costa Rican league, Omar. <laughs> Will he even make the team then, do you think? Now, yeah, as I said, I think I could see him doing quite well down there, but he needs to go somewhere and he needs to adjust the attitude a little bit too. But, uh, that's our picks. Uh, if you disagree, let us know. If you agree, let us know. Uh, if you think we're idiots, eh, let us know, I guess, whatever. Uh, we're going to take a quick break now, though, and we'll come back, and we're going to very quickly uh, wrap up the uh, MLS playoffs uh, for the first round. Or for the you know Now that the Canadian teams are out, we're still going to talk about the MLS playoff, and we'll do it quickly after this break. Well, thanks for listening to the Two Solitude Soccer Podcast. On Stitcher Radio with Dwayne Rollins and Kevin Laramie. Subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio. Listen to the show on Stitcher Radio. Stitcher Radio, Stitcher Radio. Would you just please subscribe to the show on Stitcher Radio? Thank you very much for subscribing to the show. And now, back to the show on Stitcher Radio. Coming soon on Stitcher Radio. And we're back, and we're going to keep this last segment because we uh, we did a lot of talk in the in the first two. 
Um, we're going to break down the overall series a lot more in next week's uh, weekly podcast, so don't worry, we will get some analysis in there. But uh, for today, we were just going to you know, quickly go over the scores for those of you living under a rock and, and not having MLS Live because you only had one live game this week. Yep. Uh, nil-nil for the Galaxy in, in RSL, which you know that maybe wasn't unexpected. Uh, I, w- I was expecting that, to be honest. The Galaxy are always the type of team in the playoff that the first game, home or away, they'll control things, calm things down, and usually score three or four in the, the second match. Minor victory for RSL in the fact they didn't allow an away goal, but the Galaxy, I think, still playing at home, and they play very well at home, probably in command there. Not in command, but in control. Um, Seattle and Dallas ended up 1-1 heading back to Seattle. Seattle gets the away goal, so they're moderately ahead in that series on the tiebreak. Uh yeah, I, I thought Dallas had a chance to maybe, uh, once they got the lead in that, that they might be able to get something. But Seattle showed that they are uh, their their real deal type team by being able to fight back and get that away goal. Uh, wouldn't give Dallas a lot of chance in that second series, but you never know. Seattle could cough it up. Who knows? Um, one of the more impressive performances of the week, Kevin, was the, were the Red Bulls, which was our, our sort of kind of dark horse pick. Well, Thierry Henry um, wants to play to yeah, Henri's playing. He's drawn the attention away, and Bradley Red Phillips is finishing the goals. Um, it's uh, the, the rumors I'm hearing is that he, Bradley Red Phillips has had such a great year that he's he's attracting attention back in England again, which is you know good for him. Probably he probably wants to go back. Uh, maybe he can go to QPR with Jermaine or Jermaine. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> um, yeah, but good result for the for the Red Bulls two 0 That's uh, no away goals there. I mean, they still got to go back to DC. It's it's not done, but. That's all you can expect for in a, in a, a way and your home leg as the as the lower seed, right? You get that two goal win, it's in your control. You're, you know it's going to be a hack and slash kind of control game. They're going to be looking to try and sit back and defend and hope that maybe Henri can can draw them out and and open things up for a for a counter goal. Um, your your traditional playoff tie, really, in a lot of ways. Uh, our RFK Stadium is not intimidating stadium at all. To be to go play at it's usually very cavernous, very empty stadium for DC. Even with five six thousand people, it looks empty because it's huge. So I expect yeah. New York to probably take care of that. And DC doesn't have that home advantage that they would need in that type of playoff game because New York, even though it wasn't filled at Rebel Arena, they had great support according to Daniel Farrisine, which is our New York correspondent. They had a lot of support in the Rebel Arena. It was very loud, and you could see that on the pitch. And, and this is a quick final note to that game. I've got to give a nod for spectacular trolling to the D.C. United fans who brought an NYCFC season ticket banner uh, to the Red Bull Arena. So, anyway. oh, that's a, Really? <laughs> yep. That's oh, that's sweet. Oh, yeah. Fighting words. It's already started, and the season's not over, not over yet. Yeah. All right. And uh, the final game was uh, was the Lee Wynn show. He had a great goal in that game. Maybe maybe put the tie away. Uh, New England was uh, was devastating in in a four two win in empty Columbus Crew Stadium, which is a topic maybe we could talk about briefly in a second. But um, the Crew got a very late goal on a penalty to sort of kind of keep them in the tie. But they have to win by three goals on the road uh, to have a chance because of the away goal rule. Uh, a lot of people don't. You know, the way goal rule is sort of somewhat controversial amongst some American fans. They feel that it's too much pandering to Euro kind of sensibilities that, you know, you look at a game like New England's 1-4-2, that if the away goal wasn't in play, then Columbus would just need to win by two uh, to keep this back in. But now they have to win by three, and that pretty much makes the tie almost done. 
Um, I don't know what to think. I, I've always felt that the away, you know, the away goal rule is just how things work in the sport. So uh, that's soccer. Soccer has an away rule usually, and that's yeah. how we. That's how I've been watching soccer since my childhood. That's how soccer's been played around the world for ages. And the last couple of years, I've thought there was an away goal rule. And we were always surprised. That, oh, we had to remind ourselves. Oh, it's true. Don't forget, there's no away goal rules. So when yeah. you have to say that, it should be there to start with. It's kind of the norm in a lot of ways. Um, the crew are, yeah, they're in tight. Because the New England looked just great. And they allowed the lake goal. But I, I can't see. This is going to end like 6-3 or yeah. something. Like it's, it's not going to be close, I don't think. Um, I'm most interested to watch the New York uh, DC game in the second leg. I think that's probably the best leg. I think the Galaxy are going to roll over. I think Seattle's probably going to roll over. Um, but New York DC, there's interesting little uh, drama le- yet to play out there. I think. Um, last point of conversation, and well, it's been long, so we'll cut it at that. Uh, the attendance was not great across the board, although there were some games better than others. Uh, the particular downfall was the Columbus game, where there were less than ten thousand people there. Um, you know, and then you look at the two uh, wild card games where they had low numbers. I thought the crowd crowd was into it at both of the wild card games. That the fans that did get out there were making a lot of noise and were yeah. contributing to the overall play. So I don't necessarily have an issue with the wild card attendance, Kevin's, because they only have three or four days to sell those tickets. Yeah. And you know, you look at Dallas Stadium, which is in the middle of nowhere. Uh, you know, Toronto fans, I'd be like. Can you imagine TFC having to sell a playoff game out in three days and if, if TFC played in Oakville? And that's the situation that you're dealing with with Dallas. What's wrong with Oakville? What's wrong with Oakville, except okay. that it's very hard to get to from downtown Toronto. <laughs> I used to live in Oakville for people down there. Hello, yeah. guys. Yes. They've got to take the GO train out there. That's what you have to do, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, and, the GO train. And it's, yeah, it's just not convenient for supporters on a, a weeknight, too, especially when Dallas is a team that markets to families. So, anyway, um, the mid the weekend games, there's less excuse to have a low number. Of, I think the Columbus is, like, I look, here in Toronto, we bash Columbus attendance all the time because they, the Nordecki, they, those guys, they do show up and they, they're very similar to Toronto fans, but we don't get along. But, other than them, there's just not a core support there, and there's a lot of reasons for it that don't much matter. I just, I guess the debate is how do you deal with attendance in MLS playoffs? Does it look poorly on the league to have these low numbers, these amount, massive amount of empty seats in a playoff game? It probably does. Um, I don't know what the answer is. It's not an easy one. The one solution that I've thought of is maybe to get rid of uh, ties and instead play groups uh, where the, you, know, you have a four-team group. So you eliminate the fifth team, the four team. If you want to have a wild card team for the four, four spot, fine. But whatever, <laughs> um, you have four team groups, and you have the first place team plays three games at home, or plays you know all the games are at their home. Uh, the second place team plays one game at home, one game in the road, and then the third place game plays all three games on the road, and that's how you give more more stock to the regular season. Uh, and you play a group out like that, and that would allow that home seeded team to sell in a package of, of two games, right? And have a little bit more momentum around it, and, and so on and so forth. And there might be a way to do it that might get a little bit more attention, might be a little fairer to the regular season. I don't know. It's, there's a lot of formats, and well, I have to remember the, the weather. Too. The weather comes in effect when it comes games in November, Dwayne. To be honest, it's it was three degrees Celsius yesterday here. Imagine having yeah. a playoff game here; it would not have sold out even. With all the money they could have spent on marketing, with a three-degree weather, you uh, you can't sell out outside like this. You need to only in Vancouver you could do that. Yeah, well, the same thing. There's a I talk to a lot of Toronto fans that are some of them are friends of mine 
that believe, you know, that will always dismiss these low attendances in the American cities, especially Columbus. And I always say to them, like, I don't, we, we don't know how hard it is because we've never had to deal it because our team's incompetent. But if they did, I don't think it's automatic that TFC sells out a, a playoff game, especially a, a wildcard game when you have three days' notice. I just don't think – sure, if they get deep. If TFC were to get to a conference final, stop laughing. TFC <laughs> If they were to get to a conference final, then yes, BMO would be packed and it'd be cold and everyone would just be having a laugh over it and we'd be singing, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow, or whatever in there, right? But in a first game, right after the regular season, especially if they kind of limped into the playoffs or whatever, there's just no guarantee. Um, there's a good example for that, Dwayne, last year or the year prior. I can't remember if it was the end of the season last year. Or the Seattle had a regular season game sellout of 66,000 people. They played the playoff game the week after. And there was 35,000 people. Why? Because they had an entire season to sell those 66,000. But they're only three days to sell those 35,000. So I know it's an inflated number, but it still tells you what might happen in those cities, right? Yeah. And there is, we need to understand that there is a significant, everyone in MLS needs to understand that there's a significant portion of any MLS fan base that is there because of they want to watch a soccer game at a certain time and they buy the tickets and they plan to go out plan to have a day and all that sort of things but they don't necessarily follow the team beyond that they will go watch tfc or montreal or vancouver a few times a year and will have days that are planned around that and the rest of the year if they flip by them on TV, maybe they'll stop for five seconds or whatever. But these are not tuned in people that are automatically, especially in three days, going to be able to drop everything and go watch a playoff game. There are a lot of hardcores and the people that listen to podcasts like this, the people that we know, Kevin, they're the hardcores. So it becomes very easy for us in the hardcore MLS bubble to lose sight of the fact that a lot of MLS fans, and I don't use this word derivatively, are casual. Yeah, and you you were right when you spoke about the type of fan that will go once or twice a year and plan a whole day with it. If on that said day it's raining or snowing or cold, well, those plans will go awry. They're not the type of supporters who are going to brave the temperature to support that team as well. So you have to be lenient in a way and understandable. Like this season in Montreal, 52% of the games it rained and was cold. So that tells you that... It doesn't, it's nothing to explain those attendants, but it's a, a reason that all those reasons together do explain why the league is hard to get those attendants this time of year. Yeah, because if you're a fan, MLS tickets aren't typically that expensive either. So for certain people at a certain income bracket, throwing away, like flushing $50 in tickets down the, the toilet, although not ideal, is not something they're going to go worry too much about if it's five degrees celsius out with a wind they're going to say it's not going to be comfortable down there my kids aren't going to enjoy it because i'm going to be having to run to the bathroom every two seconds to get them bundled up more to get them hot chocolate or whatever so why don't we just stay at home bake some popcorn watch it on the you know the hd tv that i have in my basement that's kind of the mentality that's out there for the you and i that uh, that like to um to go to games and are part of that scene, we can't imagine anything worse. In fact, those cold weather games, those bad weather games are things we remember. They're badges of honor for us, but we are the freaks. We are not the norm. And uh, as a freak, Dwayne, I think we talked a lot today. Yeah, that's a perfect way to end it. All right, Kevin, say goodbye. 
Sunday TSN2, Monday TSN2, you get two games live this week. RSL LA Sunday, Dallas Seattle on Monday, and until probably this week for an NSL show and a Vancouver season review. Well, have a great talker. Good things might come to those who wait, but not for those who wait too late. We gotta go for all we know. Just the two of us. We can make it if we try.